Welcome to the Signal to Noise podcast on ProSound Web, sponsored by Shure. I'm Keith Clark, editor of ProSound Web and LiveSound International, joined by my co-host, Michael Lawrence, who's the technical editor of PSW and LSI. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us once again. The music you heard on the way in was Break Free by Mike Green. You can hear more from Mike at mikegreen.bandcamp.com. All righty. We're also joined by our new co-host, Kyle Chernside, who uh, has been a live audio professional for about the last 30 years or so. Uh, Most recently, he uh, was uh, with the music group and uh, came to be known as, quote-unquote, the Midas guy. So some of you out there may know Kyle from that. Uh, He began his uh, journey in audio, mixing at venues in the St. Louis area, uh, when he was about 15, and uh, he still is a uh, uh, native or, or remains in St. Louis. Uh, he attended Webster University and Missouri State, where his focus was audio and the business of entertainment production. And since then, he's held titles such as house production, system tech, production manager, front of house, monitors, and tour management. His credits include two RIAA certified platinum records and three gold records for live engineering, along with a platinum and a Grammy nomination for producing and engineering live in Phoenix by Fallout Boy, a live album DVD. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, welcome aboard, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is going to be amazing. Can't wait to be a, a podcast hero for some folks out there. <laughs> okay so kyle um we've got a lot that we wanted to chat about and uh one thing that that i find interesting is that you've worn so many hats throughout the industry um and i think maybe a good a good spot for us to jump in is if you could talk about you know being a system tech or being a tour manager how do those things influence your your front of house mixing you know how, how does the knowledge you pick up doing one aspect of this job kind of inform the other jobs that you you've done well the two that you named uh system tech and tour manager it it makes you respect the time behind the console actually mixing the show i mean um i i think a huge percentage of us as audio professionals um talk about the time behind the console you know they don't talk about the time behind the rack or how much time you spent on the truck or how many times you had to run and get ice for the band for the bus or find the runner or um, you know, get a pack of cigarettes for the guitar player. Um, I, I think it actually just makes you respect the time that you have behind the desk mixing the show. It's like your solitude, you know, you can, you can drop everything else and just kind of drown yourself in the music for a bit, drown yourself in the mix, um, and focus on what you're really there for, you know, um, a lot of the other titles, you know, um, you get to see the other side of it, you know, and working at the venue opposed to being with the band coming into the venue. I think it kind of gives you a peace of mind, you know, how people are supposed to treat each other, how people are supposed to interact with each other, how you get things to happen without uh, confrontation or you get things done easily. So 
working on both sides of the entertainment business, whether it's for the artist or for the production company or for the venue or um, whatever it is, I, th I think it does kind of enlighten you and help your, your even your personality on how you approach things at a show. Um, and it's it's kind of like one of those memes where you're like, uh, you've you've never fell off your bike without your helmet, and it shows. <laughs> you know, it was, I was saying to a buddy of mine the other day, I wear a Fitbit, uh, the fitness tracker. And if I look at a gig day, you know, and sometimes you're talking 12, 14, 16 hour days, you know, it's it's crazy activity and a ton of steps and really high heart rate. Yeah, you know, you're moving around. And then for two hours, nothing. And then it goes back up. And I'm like, oh, that was when I was sitting at the console mixing the show. And so I think... When you say to somebody who's not in the field, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm a live audio engineer. I think they picture that. They picture that, you know, that 90 minutes or, or 120 minutes where you're sitting at the desk pushing the faders around. That's the job, and that's like 10 percent of the job, you know. And so, so to me, uh, that's sort of the break, you know, in between all the other craziness. And and so I think 90 percent of my time is spent on, you know, t advancing and and running cables and testing gear at the shop and trying to get the new software update to load and all that stuff. And so, um, you know, so somebody like me who's who I would identify as being more primarily a system tech. Um, if I am if I'm the system tech at a venue and you're touring with a group and you're coming in, you know, can you let's talk about that interaction? You know, so what what as a band artist, what can I do as as a house? system tech or house a one to make your job easier and and the other way around too what you know what can the the touring engineers do to make things run more smoothly with the house staff can you talk a little bit about that yeah for sure um i i think the first bit is to be cool like um and a lot of this preparation like you said happens in the shop and beforehand and as a house system tech you know getting a writer getting an input list getting requirements um, that's the first step into being cool. Like it, it, if the tour manager or the production manager isn't handling business as they should or saying they're too busy, like that's one of the things that I learned on the road. If you say you can't call me back cause you're too busy, you're just lying to me. You're not too busy. You have time to do it. This is important as part of your job. Like, so there, it, if I don't get any information from a production manager, tour manager before they walk in, you know, and they're grumpy, it's like, Hey man. I tried to call you, email you. I didn't receive any of this information. I think that's how you kind of lay the groundwork before you get into the venue. Because one, uh, you can either shell shock them with what you are requiring, or you can walk in and, and say, hey, man, we're going to make this work. Um, here's what my expectations are. You know, what can you get from me? And then you trade expectations instead of trading demands. Um, it, it we have to realize we're a very small community of people um, when it comes down to it. And you're going to go back into that venue and deal with that person again at some time. So you better step on the right foot. And that's one of the things I kind of prided myself on was I, I was this young kid stepping into these venues and I was always cool and I always made it help happen, jump in, do what I could. Um, but I knew the second time or the third time I came back, they would see me and they'd be like, oh, Kyle's here. It's going to be a good day. Um, and I think that helps out tenfold of anything you can do is prepare, communicate, trade, trade each other's expectations for the day. Like you can't say no to everything. 
Um, but you can say yes to a lot of things of what the expectations are going to be if you actually go into it with a good attitude. Yeah, and I think you know, I, I'm one of my one of my positions is I'm a I'm an A1 at a, at a college theater, and they bring in a lot of road acts, touring acts, and you know, so it's part of something I have to do to, to look through the documentation ahead of time and, and call up the the acts and do the advancing and or the audio the audio portion of the advancing at least, and um, it's amazing how much smoother everything goes when the people answer that email, you know, that first email, um, and. Our space is pretty unique. It has a, a very, very interesting uh, set of reverberant conditions. You know, the acoustics are, are really bizarre for a live event. And and so those types of things where just like, hey, this is probably not what you're picturing in your head. Let me just give you some information about our venue. Um, those shows end up being so much better. And I think a lot of that is communication and, uh, like you said, just being prepared and having that respect. And, and we will we will do – just about anything we can to try to accommodate people and try to make the show happen. And, you know, a lot of shows these days are spec and backline. And, and so we've got backline providers and, you know, we'll rent you just about anything you need. If you communicate with us, uh, you know, as, as the show gets closer, the range of possibilities starts to shrink because we have to get approval and we have to get budget and funding through the various departments. And, and, you know, a lot of these things take time to put in place. And so if you show up three hours before the show and you want a certain console, uh, you know, you're probably out of luck. And so yeah. um, I, I will say that, you know, the attitude with which those things are handled can be night and day um, because that it, it doesn't have to make me the bad guy because I didn't get you the console you wanted when you didn't answer your email, you know. And so um, I think even when you have a situation like that, if you're still friendly and approachable and, and we try to keep everything really laid back and really low key and, and be professional and be prepared, but at the same time, we don't get all stressed out about it. Um, that tends to rub off on people and, and people decide pretty quickly upon showing up at the venue, like, okay, these guys are cool. We're going to have a, we're going to have a good show today. And they, 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 it's amazing how quickly people seem to make up their minds. You know, it's first impressions and all that, uh, pretty quickly they've decided whether or not it's going to be a crazy day. Um, yeah. and so, you know, it, to me, it's just a lot of, you know, regardless of what we're able to do for you, we're still going to, we're all going to, we all have a common goal here, you know? Yeah. And you said something that was really cool at the very beginning. You said, I have a really reverberant room. Like there's some special things that happen in here. Uh, the worst thing you can do as a front of house engineer is, is come in as a know-it-all because you're on tour with somebody, you know, um, the house, the house person knows best. You need to learn that right away because they mix that room every night. They hear every band that comes through there, not just your band. So if you're really trying to make an impact on the venue that you're going into, work with the house people. Like um, even if they're high on meth, like uh, <laughs> work, work, work with the house people. I mean, it, they're going to work for you. If you come in with a great attitude, they're going to do great. And And it's fun to listen to both sides of the story. Like I said, being a house guy or being on the bus – that's what we do is we sit and talk about the venue or we sit and talk about the band. Um, and nobody wants that mantra because like I said, we all meet up again somewhere. When I was a younger gentleman, I was working at a um, venue in Springfield, Missouri, where I was going to school and it was super C market venue, but this was the time of new metal and all these bands were coming through that were just on the way up. And we used to say this venue was uh, all about, you're either on the way up or you're on the way out. 
the gear was just good enough to get you by to the next bigger venue in the better market next time you come through if you do well. Or if you're hitting our venue, you're probably on the way out and you're going to be playing a casino market after that. Um, but these guys would come through with all these bands and they were just rude. They would come in and yell and scream at the hands and what is this place held together with duct tape and spit. And uh, 10 years later... I'm mixing the main stage at Summer Sonic in Japan in Tokyo. And uh, this guy who used to yell at me with every band that he came in with uh, was backstage walking around. And he was like, uh, I walked by and I was like, hey, what's up, man? Remember me? Uh, Kyle from the Juke Joint in Springfield, Missouri. And he was like, um, yeah, man, what are you doing here? And I was like, mixing the main stage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I knew his band was uh, on like the, the third stage by the merch tents and, and the porta potty. So it kind of made me feel good. You know, I was always nice to that dude, and we always run into each other. So it's like, make it happen. House guy knows best. Um, it's pretty much should be standard. It's kind of like telling stagehands when they're on stage hey, man, if something falls over, don't run walk diligently to what you're doing you know uh you don't want to bring fear into people right off the bat same with loading in gear into a venue yeah we had you know it's it's really interesting the range of uh interactions that we'll have bringing a show and we had a show uh many years ago i was probably 19 or 20 years old i was really young and uh you know that's that that can cause you some difficulties in this industry because the you know the old road dogs they'll take one look at you and they've decided you don't know what you're doing uh, whether oh, yeah. or not you do and so um, you know to, so that makes it even more important for for any young people who who may be in that situation it makes it even more important to study as much as you can and just learn as much as you can and also know when to stop talking and listen but also be polite be cool be friendly be approachable you know that makes it really hard for someone to get on your case but this this gentleman who was mixing this band that came through wouldn't send me an input list wouldn't send me a rider so generally when an act would show up we would try to have the console patched for them and labeled and you know the stage boxes laid out and mic stands and everything ready you know as best we could but if you don't send me that information i can't do that uh, and so the guy shows up and uh, starts bitching about our equipment, and I'm like, "Well, this is what we have." You know, I that's the the thing that 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 drives me crazy is complaining about the house people to the gear that they have. They didn't pick it, you know. They they know it's not great if it's not great. You're not going to. Uh, it, it's it's not really up to them. So um, when someone comes into a venue, you know that I'm responsible for and they don't like my gear. I didn't buy it. I didn't choose it. I just work here. So, you know, you're not, that's not productive. <laughs> like, not think productive about it. I have to use it every night. I'm well aware of how good it is or not. So he wouldn't let me help him with the patch. He wouldn't let me help him with the mic placement. He wouldn't let me help him with setting up the console. And then he starts to do his line check and stuff's coming up in the wrong places. And he had all these Y cables to split things. And I'm like, Oh, it's a digital desk. So I can just double patch it for you. And, um, so then he starts yelling at me, well, that should be coming up on seven. And I'm like, sir, you haven't let me lay a finger on anything you've done all day. You didn't communicate with me at all. So I don't really know how to help you. And so I think you can sort of make your life harder than it needs to be. Uh, you know, that's a situation where I, I, I'm there. I'm being paid to be there for that guy and to solve any problems as best I can. But you, you won't give me the tools to do that. So um, that's that's part of the thing that you're saying is, you know, no one's going to, you know, the, the house guy's not going to steal your gig. Don't worry. He's there to help you. And so, <laughs> you know, so for me, as, as a house guy, I want you to have a great show. That's in my best interest for you to have a great show. Um, and And I've had shows where, 
I had to babysit because they weren't familiar with the desk or they, you know, we were brand new with the act and they didn't haven't haven't actually seen the show before or they had trouble with our acoustics, which is is really valid. And and I've had shows where I hadn't didn't have to do anything except shake a hand and say, hey, uh, I'm gonna let you do your thing. If you need anything, give me a shout. And some some of the people that come through are just happy to do that and everywhere in between. So I think I think it all goes back to that interaction of of just having good commu- communication up front and, you know, letting people be really clear about what we have and what we might need to do and and just having that ongoing communication you can have a really easy day or you can have a really stressful day and i think i think that's determined you know like way in advance for sure i i think i have the patience of a a a monk sometimes when it comes to that um and and that works out for the best keith i have a question for you because Mm -hmm. of of timeline of engineers and kind of how we've evolved into what we are today um i always kind of look back you know i'm only 32 years old i mean (laughs) i've been doing this for 30 years so (laughs) uh I I wonder if there's like a timeline of progression of these sound mixers and engineers that have been coming up the ranks of when things began to get better. Like um in in technology advances so fast that I don't think we really notice it um as well as we should because even even the first venues that I was working at, man, it was rough. Like uh duct tape and spit was holding the place together, you know. Um but now walking into a venue, uh, we're not seeing these old, uh, like I, I like to call them the old grumpy guys who, who get off the bus and like don't like their job for some reason. Um, we're seeing a lot more people like Michael who actually like to dig into the books and ask questions. And there's actually school and, and training provided for this now. The the weird thing is, is that still there's nothing better than being on a real life show site. You know, that, that, that changes a kid from this kid that wants to mix music to a kid that's definitely going to push himself or push themselves to mix music. Do do you see a timeline of like when this stuff started to switch over? Like, Oh, I, I would put it at uh, maybe 15 or so years ago. I hadn't really thought about it chronologically, um, but, but that's what I would estimate. Um, and, and it's kind of natural when you think about it, because those uh, old school folks that you were talking about are, you know, getting long in the tooth and they're either retiring or at least getting off the road, uh, that type of thing. So then who's going to take their place? It's people with, you know, younger people, obviously, and with a little bit less of an edge to them. I think our society uh, in general has gotten a lot more polite. Um, and, and so I think you see that reflected in kind of even the, you know, gray hairs of, of this thing. We, we came up in a different time. Um, whereas, you know, when we all grew up, I'm, I'm about the same age as you, Kyle. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Times two, but anyway, um, You know, you would go to a minimum wage job and young folks out there, that was minimum wage. Um, But anyway, you would go and there would typically be an older guy or two and they would not give you a moment's peace. I mean, you're just there doing your best and being polite and respectful and doing everything they ask. And they just couldn't get enough of, you know, giving you the business, giving you a hard time. And again, I think that's, you know, our society has gotten 
a lot more polite. And with that, a lot of those grumpy old folks, especially grumpy old guys, eh, they've uh, kind of moved on to, you know, different pastures. And I think I think also you know there's besides the social element um, there there's a, there's a formal aspect like you know thirty years ago you couldn't go to school for audio engineering you know you couldn't that's not a thing and and now it's a thing and um, I think we're 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 still at a time where most of the people in the field didn't go to school for it you know they they learned as an apprentice as a craft and uh, I think you know that that trade aspect is not going to go away but we're, we're it's starting to become more commonplace to say I went to school for this or I study this formally, and I also think it's sort of the you know the Isaac Newton the standing on the shoulders of giants concept a little bit because you know from a system tech angle, uh, well I I think first of all having modern tools goes a long way towards propelling the field forward. You know you couldn't do in the seventies and eighties what you can do with today with a sound system because we couldn't measure it, we couldn't analyze it, we didn't understand it, um, and I think that ties into something. It's it's always iterative, you know. Uh, so from the system tech angle, you know, it takes Bob McCarthy thirty years to come up with, uh, you know, the the foundation for you know the materials in his book, and then someone today who's interested in becoming a system tech can read the book, and uh, they don't have to start from square one. They don't have to spend thirty years trying to understand the concepts. They can sort of start from there and then go forward and build on that as a foundation. And so I think each new generation comes along and has at its disposal all the knowledge and experience of the previous generation should they be willing to put the time in and take advantage of that. Um, so I think there's sort of an acceleration effect as well where we're all building on past knowledge, past experience, past developments. You know what I mean? For sure. And I, I also think that there's a lot more credibility in the schools now because um, – adjunct professors being able to come in and help out the kids, being able to go on site. Um, obviously, studio and broadcast was the first bit of audio style production in in schools, and now it's getting into more of the live aspect and mixing. I, that's why I switched to go to Missouri State was they offered the uh, event production management and business management of music, which was really crazy because, you know, you'd go into the production office and there'd be all these ex- Excel spreadsheets and you had to pay for barricade and no one taught anybody how to do that stuff. And I think I spent the first 15 years of my career trying to legitimize my job with my parents. I was like, it's (laughs) it's a real job, mom, I swear. And then this guy named Keith did an article on me and all of a sudden I'm on a wall. So that's like my, my college accreditation. It was uh, Keith Clark's first article that he did with me uh, 15 years ago. Yeah, boy, that is still, I think, about the loudest thing I have ever attended. Not not your sound reinforcement. That was perfectly fine. Heard the band very well. But, I mean, I've never been in a reverberant venue, which this was, with 20,000 screaming teenage girls. I mean, wow, was that something. (laughs) So... One of my friends posted on Facebook yesterday, it was like, Motorhead was the loudest show I've ever heard. And I kind of went through my loudest shows, and I tend to forget how loud my shows were. Um, yeah, when no one believes me, it's like, oh, man, I saw Motorhead, and they were so loud. Oh, I saw Volbeat, and their stage volume was insane. Oh, I saw this. And I'm like, man, did you ever see Fall Out Boy on, from Under the Cork Tree Tour? And everyone's like, 
what a douche. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's Fallout Boy. It can't be that loud. Oh, yeah. 15 uh, year old girls with My Chemical Romance shirts on um, will scream their head off for 12 songs in a row. It was loud. Well, I remember talking to a buddy of mine. Mixed, uh, he mixed one of Bieber's opening acts years ago. So he was out on tour with with the Bieber tour, and he was like, "The screaming is so loud." He said, "There's no PA in the world that that can get over, you know, sixty five thousand teenagers." He said, "It's just not a thing." And uh, you know, even if it was, he said, "It's not safe. I, I would hurt, be hurting people. I can't mix that loud." And so they just have to. They're going to have to quiet down if they want to hear the show. And so it's, you know, that's one of those things where. You know, it's one of those things that maybe you don't think of until you're in that situation. You're going, oh, my God, I know that no one's going to hear this show. I didn't think about that. You know, that doesn't come up in rehearsals. <laughs> I kind of didn't want them to play the first four songs in that order because I knew they were just going to scream through it the whole way. Um, <laughs> but I tell you what, uh, mixing from a pop angle, obviously the vocals are everything. It's kind of like worship and um, a bunch of other genres where if they can't understand the words they're going to totally hate on your show and post on YouTube and whatever. But holy cow, like, thank goodness for the girls that knew all the words because um, you couldn't hear vocals at all for the first four songs. And that was my first tour I ever did was a uh, it was a hip hop artist. And so, again, it's the same thing. It's people, you know, the guy had very clever lyrics and the fans knew the songs and wanted to hear those lyrics. And. And so then you get into this whole production management, you know, it's it's sort of like production managing yourself um, because, you know, some of these clubs, you have 20 minutes to get ready. Um, and you, sometimes you don't know the state of the system that you're walking into. Sometimes you don't know if you have subs that night. Sometimes you don't know, you know, how many snake channels are going to be bad. And those are just, the, that was the reality at the time. And and if, if I need 18 out of 20 minutes on soundcheck to get the vocal sounding right, I'm going to do that. And I'm, you know, I'll get to floor tom during the set maybe but no one's gonna ask for a refund because the floor tom didn't sound right um you know and so so you really quickly that's one of those rubber hits the road things where you know everyone says yeah i start my sound check on on you know channel one or whatever i don't i start my sound check on the most important channel uh and we go down from there and if you don't get to tom two then you don't get to tom two <laughs> you know what i mean what's the favorite show you guys have mixed oh oh that's a good question i would have to say um, well, this is actually kind of be, this is a, this is a cheater response, but I did a, a bluegrass artist named Bruce Molsky and he has a phenomenal band with him. And I think it was just a trio. Um, and it was three condenser mics and they travel with three condenser mics and they go, here we go. We need three XLRs and give us some phantom power and bam, there you go. And it was one of those, I did very little. I did some very, very light fader moves just to balance the vocals depending on who was singing lead and that was about it and i really enjoyed the show and it sounded great and it was nothing that i did it was not at all about you know my skills as an engineer it was literally stay out of the way and let these great musicians do their jobs and i enjoyed it and i it was one of those things that it was almost as if i had bought a ticket and just watched the show because i was able to sort of just relax and enjoy it and it was it was great so i, I will say that would be my favorite show that i've mixed that's like my guilty pleasure right now is is bluegrass and country music. One of my friends is out with that band uh, Midland, and holy cow, they sound like every '80s country band that my parents listen to, and I love them right now. It's kind of like my guilty pleasure. So, uh, um, favorite band I mixed on the road uh, was Jet, 
Um, oh, that, yeah. I remember those guys. Australian band. It was cool yeah. because one song was kind of ACDC and the next song was kind of Oasis. And the dudes never rehearsed. Um, they barely did sound check. They just got up there and rocked every night. And uh, they had an auxiliary player that played a bunch of different shakers, like Aboriginal instruments and keys. And he played guitar and sung backgrounds. And um, every night uh, when they did Are You Going to Be My Girl, uh, the lead singer dude would throw his tambourine back to the auxiliary player and he'd catch it and pick it up. So it was, they were just fun to watch. Like I've toured with a bunch of bands, but like that one, that one was fun to mix. They were really fun to mix. I wish they'd come back and do the thing. So I'm going to, I'm going to also do the favorite, my favorite show I ever system tech, because it's also a funny story. We had uh take six, the gospel acapella group come through and their their front of house guy Tony Huerta is just a phenomenal engineer and really really cool guy and I I uh, was rather young at the time and so I enjoyed talking to him and uh, you know he showed me a lot of stuff which was really cool and that show was so funny because we had our crew you know waiting and the artist shows up and Tony comes in with a single pelican and I said hey man you know I'm I'm Michael I'll be your your house uh, a one tonight so you know just let us know what you need and we're here to help you in any way we can and he goes. I'm totally good, man. I'm I'm good. Uh, I said, do you need us to carry anything? He's like, nope. He just pops his Pelican open. There's six wireless mics in there. That was the show. Six wireless mics. I'm like, oh, okay. It's going to be an easy night, fellas. And and so we just kind of hung out. And he, you know, they came out on stage and he spun up their mixes real quick. And uh, he, I, I think out of the six guys, four of them share an in-ear monitor mix, which is really, really interesting. He says, yes, it makes them sing for the group instead of themselves. And I said, wow, that's really cool. And so that was another one of those you know, these guys are just so good uh, that you don't have to do anything. And uh, that was my favorite System Tech show. System Tech show. <laughs> so, so the theme is when I have easy nights. No, I'm just joking. No, it was, it's, 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 Three mics, I, yeah. six mics, easy night, I'm going home. <laughs> I think it's, it's – <clears throat> I will say this though. Uh, you know, thinking back on the days when I was just fighting – in the clubs and these little tiny bars and stuff, you know, and you, you need every DB of game before feedback you can get. And the vocal monitors are blowing all over the stage. That's hard. And it, it, every time I think when the venue gets a little bit bigger, uh, when the gear gets a little bit better, when the musicians start getting really good, um, all those things make your job easier. So in a way it gets easier as you go. And so maybe that's some sort of like underhanded encouragement for the folks in the trenches, um, where I spent a lot of time, you know, is that stuff's difficult. And a couple times a year, I, there's a local band that I'm kind of buddies with and they'll go and they'll do a bar show and I'll go like, okay, <laughs> I really wanted to get to bed before midnight, but I guess I, well, it's cool. I'll go and do it. And we go and do it and we have, we have fun, but I, I'm just in there going, man, it's loud in here. And there's, you know, it smells like beer and, <laughs> and it's, it's, you forget very quickly. I'm like, this is tough. This is, that's tough stuff. And so, so I think, you know, in a way, the better the musicians are, the less you have to do. And those are the gigs that I really enjoy because I, I of course, love good music. But also, you know, I, if I don't have to do all that much, that tells me a lot about the skills of the, the people that are on stage. Yeah, man. Um, I I love little, tiny, horrible shows. Like, that's what I grew up doing. I mean, one of my first tours was Zeo, Living Sacrifice, The Ludicrous, and Not Waving But Drowning in a Ford Explorer across every church basement in america and 
it was a nightmare every night. Sometimes they'd play three songs and a fight would break out and the show would just be over. Like a PA would tip over, one speaker was working. But man, every kid that comes up to me asks me about arena shows and amphitheater shows. It's like, don't believe the hype, man. Like I said, the cool thing about mixing those shows is is just mixing, like not doing anything else. That 12-hour day, you you live for that 90, 120 minutes and it's done. Like the thrill is over when you're doing these little club shows, you're driving the van, you're selling merch, you're trying to sleep on somebody's floor at night. Like that's the journey, man. You're, (laughs) that's how we, how you become a warrior. Like you wake up and you're like, Hey, did we really have to fight all those people last night? Yeah. Like (laughs) that happened. Now I get to mix a show today in in St. Francis church and you know, podunk iowa or whatever but yeah i i love doing small shows i like seeing the fire still like um i still work club shows here in st louis i work at the ready room and um the foo bar and uh, i don't go to shows unless i'm working i kind of got to that point in my life um my my daughter's five and my lady loves going to shows but um i just don't do it unless i'm working so uh I love doing those little shows. I did Snow the Product um, last week, and this weekend I'm doing El Monstero, which is a Pink Floyd tribute band with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, which turned into a nightmare, but um, it's Pink Floyd, man. <laughs> like Once they start playing, you're like, oh, everything's cool, bro. Like, <laughs> like you want to kick off your shoes and just chill. I'm mixing monitors for them, and that's always a challenge too is because I love doing front of house, but if I have the chance to do monitors for something of that size, that makes it fun. Like I put my little knife in, I got my Gerber tool. Like <laughs> I, I look like a monitor engineer. My friend Zach used to tell me, he was like, dang, dude, you look like an engineer. Like, holy cow. You look like you stepped off the bus. Every time I see you, you look like you stepped off the bus. So, um, yeah, I love doing those shows. Those are, those are fun. So let me ask you this then, because I've had uh, one of the bands that I mix regularly. They've they've within the last year moved to in ear monitors, and so when I mix them, I'm mixing front of house and I'm doing four different in ears mixes. And so you know that was a real departure for me as someone who had only done front of house for so long. I had to rethink the way I was setting my console up, and I had to rethink the the, the way I was running my gain structure stages through the desk, and I had to rethink how I was routing my effects, and it really made me understand what I was doing on a different level. So, so what, you know, what kind of things did you pick up or what kind of things would you offer to someone who, you know, maybe is going to have to end up doing monitors or wants to get into monitors, but they're scared of doing it. You know, what, (laughs) what's that change like? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Don't ever guess what the artist wants. Um, that, that's one of the, the best things about doing monitors is I always say that you have to kind of play Miss Cleo and cause, cause an artist, even if they've been doing it for a bazillion years or they're new at it, they never know exactly what they want. They just want everything turned up. And if they call frequencies, sometimes it's pretty funny. And um, But you kind of got to play Miss Cleo and never expect that they want something because obviously it sounds way different where they're standing if they're using loud backline. But um, – that was one of the things that we did with follow boy, even as a front of house engineer a long time ago is everyone was switching over to in-ear monitors. And I realized how good it could sound out front 
if I kind of took away some of the crutches from them on stage. Like first they went to in-ears with wedges and side fills and then the wedges went away and then eventually we took the wedges and the side fills away and it was just their back line and then now and eventually we went to all di's so the only thing that had mics on stage was a drum kit and the vocals so um it made monitor mixing for ears so much easier so controlled like um sometimes i don't even have to listen to my pack i can just basically scan the stage wait for someone to point to something and do the symbol and i decipher what they want and just go um but yeah never assume what an artist wants or even if they ask you for something specific never assume that they're correct uh, especially if they're just telling you to turn it up all the time yeah that's something that i i found you know when they say hey hey mikey can you turn this <laughs> call me mikey can you turn this up or can you turn that up uh usually i turn everything else down a little bit and they go yeah great thank you you know and because they they you know they're it, it's not their responsibility to understand stuff like masking and use of the stereo field. That's our job. And you know, it's our job to apply those principles in a way that's going to make the artist comfortable. And, and it also strikes me how much a lot of what you're talking about really comes back to having a good relationship with the artist, having them trust you. Uh, in, in the last 12 months, I think my artists, they've gone from 70s, just crank it up, you know, just killer stage volume. Uh, we've to the point now where we have no wedges on stage, I only have one live guitar amp. Everything else is DI'd and, and amp-simmed and so on and so forth. And they sound phenomenal out front. It's it's really, really tight. It's great, you know. And then I had, you know, the lead guitarist. He said, yeah, I love the amp sim. He said, I still just want to have my cab behind me just because I kind of like it. And last night at rehearsal, we tried just shutting his, his cab off completely. And he said, man, it just really cleans up the mix. Like, so I think when they're trusting you and they, they really – I think most bands are, they're, you know, they're naturally, they're worried about their sound, it's their product, they want to sound good. And, and so it's part of their job to be concerned about how are we <laughs> sounding, you know. And when they get to the point where they, they really can truly say, I don't have to worry about my sound because Michael's going to take care of it. And then they kind of just play, they play or, better, you know. Or you just like make it seem like it was their idea. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, to get, to, to get them truly comfortable. And I think one of the comments that they were saying is, well, we didn't, we didn't realize how good you know in ears could be because they 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 went to in ears before I was working with them and at the time I started working with them they were very frustrated because they had just gone to in ears uh, and they were using them as if they would use wedges and they couldn't hear and they were very frustrated and you know that starts with sitting down and making sure they have a good seal uh, making sure the earpieces are comfortable going all the way back and doing you know RF coordination on the and and so just when you hit all those steps. Now I've got it, and it ties into what you're saying about you know it, it, what does the artist really want because I have. Two uh, two of my guys have pretty close to front of house studio quality mixes in the ears, and they're these big fat. You know, everything's in there. The lead singer, she has her vocal and like bat cave reverb, like three and a half second haul, and that's it. And she's happy. And so the guitar player, he has hearing loss, you know, and so he's got really shrill <laughs> his own guitar right down the center, and a little bit of the other guitar, and that's it. And he's totally happy. And it's a mistake for me to go boy, that sounds harsh. Let me roll some of the highs off. Or boy, I, I really want to hear some bass in there. It's not about what I think sounds good. It's about what he needs to get through the show. And so you can't project, you know, my personal preference on this mix. And in front of house, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of using your taste to kind of shape the sound. And within ears, I've noticed, no, if they, you know, 
he's happy. Don't don't mess with it. He's totally happy. <laughs> that's that's the way he wants it. I don't like the way it sounds, but it's not it's not about whether or not I like the way it sounds. It's about am I am I giving him the what he needs to to sound good. You know. Yeah, it's a challenge, man. Um, uh, I I like mixing ears a lot. It's fun to sit back there with the band and kind of get their feedback. And um, I'm always watching. Like uh, I tell them at the beginning of the show, hey man, I'm gonna kind of stare at you pretty creepily until I figure you guys are safe and then I'm going to be looking at my phone for the rest of the show. Obviously, if I'm <laughs> not, if I'm working for the artist, I won't tell them that, but I probably will be looking at my phone after about the third song. But um, <laughs> if I'm just working at a venue, you know, getting them set up and going and making them feel comfortable, it's, it's, it's actually pretty easy. I think some people just kind of go at it a little bit too hard sometimes. Like, um, I'll look at show files from people's other in-ear mixes and they did all kinds of EQing and like, uh, I, I like when they spread stuff out, but sometimes they spread it out in the wrong perspective. Um, you know what I mean? Like, uh, they'll put things super far left and super far right in the ears that don't need to be spread apart that far. They need to be a little bit fuller in the ears. Um, you know, simple mistakes where, Hey man, the, the desk should be doing most of the work for you at this point, like a little high pass or low pass, you know, get it in there, put it in the right field of hearing for the, the artist and kind of start from there. Um, don't overdo it. And and if you think you're overdoing it, stop and rethink, you know, go move a microphone or change a tone or whatever, especially with like people with Kempers and different amp emulators. Like that's the first time that they're really going to hear their emulation right in their ears. Like they're supposed to. So most guitar players can be pretty discerning and be like, ah, yeah, I probably need to go in and fix that now. Now that I hear it through my in-ears. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a that's it's funny that you say that because our lead guitar player, the this artist that I work with, when they went to ears, he ended up rebuilding his entire rig. I mean, from the the pedals down to the amp, everything. He because he was for the first time really truly hearing his sounds and his tone, and and we spent a lot of time. You know, to his credit, he said, "I want to get this right," and we spent hours trying different pedals and, and trying different series of pedals and recording and listening back. And, and I, I found that it really does push the artists to pay more attention to their sound. And, and, you know, on the one hand, they, they finally can, can have a little more freedom with the sound they're getting. But on the other hand, like they really do have to be more picky about it. Um, and, and so it's kind of funny now that we've done so much great work with his, his pedal rig that, you know, I think, I think I have a high pass filter at, at 65 hertz on his channel and that's it you know i he puts that fader up i put the fader up on the console and he plays the guitar and it's like perfect every time you know what i mean and it's it's there's no more drum bleed coming in and there's no more you know goofy stuff from the amp being in a corner on stage and uh it's just it's it's amazing how paying and we're getting into you know this is very similar to the conversation that we had with Kurtz mitchell a couple months ago the more time you spend getting that source right i mean it's amazing how much easier everything else gets and so so every time now every time i find myself reaching for compression or eq i mean literally and this is i'm sure partially informed by my background as a system tech where eq is is literally correcting for something and there's a cause for why i need this eq i've been looking at mixing the same way i need this eq filter why what am i trying to correct for what's causing that you know, is it is it the way the mic is placed? Is it the choice of mic? Is it the way that we have their tone set on the pedal board? And so when you when you take that mindset and say, well, 
instead of me going in here and scooping around, why don't we go after that? Why don't we go find out what's causing that and, and deal with it? Uh, it's amazing how quickly these mixes start to come together. Well, unfortunately, guys, I think we're running up against the clock. So uh, everyone out there, this is the type of discussions we're going to be having with a wide variety of guests on a regular basis here on the Signal to Noise podcast. So uh, keep an eye out. We'll be posting more of these on a regular basis. And uh, once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Sure. And uh, you've been listening to us on Shure SM7B microphones. And, uh, you know, we, we really dig them. So uh, anyway, we'll uh, say bye-bye and uh, talk with you next time. <laughs>